0: So, hi everyone, really nice to be here today live on LinkedIn. i um, really excited to have Guitano Denardi with me today and we're going to be talking all things Diary of a First Time CMO. Um, it's World Book Day today actually so it's yeah it's a good day to be doing this. This is our virtual book launch um, so yeah excited to be here with Guitano. He's gonna deep dive some questions so that we can um, highlight some of the key insights from the book.
1: Yeah, sounds good. Uh, Alice, congrats to you and the team. I think this is a genius idea. Um, You know, everybody talks about content repurposing, but this is maybe the greatest example ever of content repurposing. I think you guys uh, definitely went above and beyond. And I'm really excited to uh, talk to you about the lessons learned over the years as a first-time CMO at Cognizant. And I guess, you know, we'll dive right in and get right into the insights if you're cool.
0: Sounds good to me. Yeah, let's do it. All
1: right, awesome. So, um, you know, this book, it documents the the four year journey as a first time CMO at Cognizant. We'll be covering the lessons that helped you guys grow from 3 million to 50 million plus in annual revenue. That's uh, no easy accomplishment. There's not many programs out there that can say they've done that. So, uh, I definitely tip my hat to you and the team. And um, you know, let's get into a little bit about you as well. Um, we gotta, we gotta hear the the backstory of the person behind all the numbers and all the success. So, um, what has your journey been like in B two B marketing? And uh, what were you doing before Cognizant?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, it's definitely pro- probably not like a typical journey, um, and I think. That's why in the book, what I've tried to do is provide a mixture of like mindset and then also like very tactical learnings. Mm-hmm. So um, to summarize, I guess, where I, where I got to into B2B be, to be marketing, originally I thought that I wanted to be a journalist. Um, I did a degree in international relations and politics and I was kind of dead set on journalism as kind of being where I wanted to, to be. So I got my first marketing role in a tiny little journalism um, outlet who specialized in Latin America. And it was one of those like you're the only marketer in the org, so you're doing everything. Um, and the reason I took that job was because I thought well, that's just an in into like the journalism side of things and I'll 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 manage to make my way onto like the reporting desk somehow. Not that I spoke any Spanish and I had don't know really know what was going through my mind at that point. But anyway, kind of a couple of years in, I realized that actually I really loved the marketing side of things. Um and I wanted to to do more of that, but I was still really enjoying the subject matter of kind of like the journalism type piece. So I went to work for Thomson Reuters. Um, and the role that I got at Thompson Reuters was actually in their legal tech um, division. Mm-hmm. So I started marketing SaaS for the first time. And I had multiple products under my portfolio. And it was an incredible place to learn, but a massive, massive organisation. So mm-hmm. um, and all of the challenges that come with working in a huge corporate in terms of like actually seeing the benefit of your work and being able to measure it easily. Um, And it's actually where I first met Liam as well. So, and then I decided that I wanted to go from being pretty invisible to kind of having more direct impact. Um, And I got approached by a legal tech startup and I joined them as commercial hire number one um, and build out the marketing. I mean, we didn't even have like a Twitter or LinkedIn. It was like literally day one, everything from scratch, like build the whole piece. Um, And from there, I was also managing the BDR function and so like a year and a bit in, I was looking for a contact data provider, started going through the sales process with Cognism, and somehow managed to get poached along the way um, and into the, career, like the hiring process for the cognizm head of marketing role. And I went through the whole process, got offered the job the first time around, and then imposter syndrome very much kicked in. And I actually rejected the role because I thought that I wasn't ready to do it. Um, and so I sat on that for like three months and I thought, okay, I really need to um, kind of just take, yeah, take the plunge um, and, and put myself to the test. And so I got back in touch and I said, you know, if you're still looking, then I would be interested. And then at that point I took the role and the rest, as they say, is history.
1: Wow, that's an unconventional path to, to becoming a CMO. Uh, you certainly didn't go the uh, the big corporate route Uh, you know, work your way up as like manager, senior manager, director, senior director, VP, SVP, you know, you just basically took the bull by the horns, got in early at a startup and drove the thing to where it is today. And uh, I I definitely love that approach. Um, You know, there's no right or wrong way to go about it, but I think uh, that's a valuable lesson to be learned for any aspiring CMO out there. uh, You may not need to go that corporate route. You could just go to a startup like you And just grind through it, you know, get over that imposter syndrome and take it to where it is today. And I think that's a good segment into the next part of this interview, which is basically, uh, what is the diary? And then why? um, Why now? Why did you decide to release it now? Why not? You know, two years ago, Why, why did you feel like this was the right time?
0: Yeah, definitely. So first of all, the diary is a mix of, of, I've kind of said this before, but very much a mixture of mindset and then also tactical learnings over the four years of being in that CMO seat um, and what it's taken to build that repeatable demand gen engine, but also all of the lead gen stuff that we did in the very early days as well. Um, And there's a lot of the whole building process within the diary. And in terms of like, I guess, why did I think it's important to talk about the mindset a lot? I think when I was looking back at what got me to this into the CMO seat, I realised that I could attribute most of it down to mindset rather than any specific action that I took. So like some of the things that you'll see within the diary and that I really touch on a lot are, and the things that my team will know me very well for, um, some of my sayings, so done is better than perfect, an idea is only as good as its execution. I always want people who are action biased and that's definitely in my DNA and in the DNA of all of my team. I'm very operational by default, which I think has definitely enabled me to build what what I've created at Cognizant and then also at Juro. Um, And it also is very open about like my daily confidence struggles and how I had to get comfortable being really uncomfortable for a long time. Um, And then I think really importantly as well, embracing change. I think when I look back at um, the four years of and this journey at Cognizant, I think one of the big things that has been that I've been open to change, I've actually embraced change, I've wanted to innovate, and I've created a team and a willingness um, to do that. And that's given us a competitive advantage in many ways. Um, And then in terms of why now for the diary, four years seems like a good point. And I think we've also built enough that I feel like hopefully people can learn from it at this stage. Also, I feel like it was it was one of those, it was an example of me, I guess, practicing what I preach. I had this idea for a, for taking one of my LinkedIn posts and repurposing it into a diary. And I just put it out there on LinkedIn. I just said, would people be interested? And at this point, it wasn't, it was nothing more than just an idea. And there was a ton of demand for that. And I got um, an overwhelming amount of response. So I thought, okay, well, there is definitely something here. So it's worth putting the time in to build on. And also we'd already been a year and a half into our journey on the demand gen side of the fence and building this media machine. So I felt like we had the engine behind it that could, and this would lend itself really nicely to that whole media machine as well. So it felt like just timing wise, it all kind of, it all worked out well. Made sense. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's, that, that's amazing. You know, the, the bias to being an operator as a CMO is uh, such a rare quality. And I can tell you that, um, you know, being that way as a CMO, that's the ultimate way to get respect from your team. When you feel like your CMO is in the trenches with you, uh, actually getting the hands dirty and, and even doing some of the work, that's where the team says, wow, this person's in it to win it and not just trying to stay at the super high top level, You know that kind of thing. So major respect to that. And I'm sure that was a huge contributor to your success. But there's also this portion of this book that talks about 10% mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you attributed a lot of your success uh, to the 10% mindset. And I think you touched on it a little bit with uh, done is better than perfect. But what what is the the 10% mindset? And how do you how do you go about instilling that into your team as well?
0: Yeah, I definitely think this is like been a big unlock for me. And it comes back to like, I have a philosophy in that I just really focus on what are the things that I can control and I know that something that I can't control is that I'm to to be the brightest marketing brain in the room I know that that's probably out of my control but what I can control is the amount of effort and energy that I put into learning and um, enhancing myself and also like any task that I'm given so I can be the hardest working person but the key to this is that it has to be sustainable So why I talk about the 10% mindset is because this is the idea of something you have to practice daily and you practice it on every single task or every single thing that you do throughout the day. And the idea is that that is a sustainable amount of effort over and above what most other normal people will do. um, And that the compounding effect of that 10% over time is what will really make you stand out and have a bigger impact. And I've definitely seen that through practicing that myself, whether it be in my work as a CMO or in other aspects of my life, like in the gym or um, yeah, health, health and fitness, those types of things. I think it's just um, an incredible discipline to take and use throughout your life, whether it be in yeah, your marketing role or not. And the other thing that's really important about it is I've seen people who I've worked with where they might you know come and offer 150% to the job for two weeks. But then they go away and they do nothing or they do 40% of the job for the next two weeks. And the problem is that then when you net that out, you're actually operating under what you should be. And so that's the great thing about the 10% mindset, again, is that it's completely sustainable and the compounding impact of it is is really big.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, What about imposter syndrome, though? Like, Do do you think you've gotten over the imposter syndrome? And uh, what if yes, I think you probably have. um, What would you say has really helped you overcome a lot of that imposter syndrome and, you know, testing your boundaries as a first time CMO?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was a lot of self-reflection. I realized that like, if I was going to be ambitious, which is something that I thought that I was, I couldn't be doing things like turning down a job role that I've worked really hard to get offered because I was doubting myself and I realized that actually nothing great was going to come out of my comfort zone. Um, And so I had to take chances. And I think taking everything a day at a time, especially in those early days, in that seat was like was massively helpful for me. And I was leaning into my strengths and just continually focusing on adding value like every day, a bit back to that kind of 10% mindset piece. I need to leave the the office today having added some piece of value. It comes back to like action biased, operational by default. Like I wasn't just going to go away and not show anything for a month and then suddenly present this like deck. I wanted to be continually adding that value. And that really helped me to like gradually build up confidence. Um, And then over time, like getting positive reinforcement, seeing the results in themselves, all of these things help you to, um, yeah, to overcome that imposter syndrome. And actually, it was Liam who said to me only at the start of this year, I think, and like, you know, he's been by my side for nearly all of the four years um, and saw me at Thomson Reuters. And he said, you know what, Alice, I actually think like this year is the first year I just see you very comfortable in your seat. And He was like, "That." And I think like outwardly people can see that as well. Um, but it's taken it's taken time and it's it's about being getting really comfortable being comfortable, which is like a hard thing to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can relate to a lot of that as well. You know, um, you know, I've been in marketing for a while myself. And even after all this time, I'm finally now just starting to feel really comfortable and confident in what I'm doing. Uh, and it's awesome to see you thriving, feeling really confident in your seat. And, uh, you know, having that support behind you is also huge. So congrats to you and the team uh, for being confident in what you guys are doing and being great at strategy and execution, all the things alike. It's awesome. So talking about uh, now the team, uh, part of the book really goes into hiring. Uh, this is a huge topic in the world of B2B marketing. It's so tough for so many companies and CMOs. What's your experience in hiring and how do you go about hiring at Talk, Yeah, Tell us about that.
0: I think like I talk about it in the book, but hiring has to be your CMO superpower. Like it absolutely does have to be. And it's actually something that my CEO measures me like very closely on is am I someone who can hire well? And also when I do hire, do that do the team, go on to learn, progress and be happy. Um, and I think that's really important like, that that is a key competency that I hold and, and should be focused on. Um, and so I also take with that the approach of like always be hiring. I'm not necessarily always got open roles, but. Um, I always want to be having conversations with people, seeing what the talent um, is like out there and understanding also like the benchmark of my team in comparison to that. So I think those sort of mindset things are really, really important parts of it. And then from a really practical perspective, like how I've grown the team at Cognizant has been fairly organic. So it has changed over time depending on where the needs have la- have, have like, lain basically. So as we've built this repeatable um predictable demand gen engine it's become apparent where the areas that are really working and where we need to be doing more are under-resourced and there is no possibility for us to do more without having more headcount Um, and in the early days i had to kind of make a case for that quite um powerfully to the finance team because they would actually just sort of want to chuck more money at the problem in program spend as opposed to headcount spend And so I would go into those conversations and say, it's not actually a question of just spending more. We need actual like manpower behind that spend in order to manage it correctly. And for us to operationalize it in the most effective way possible. Um, And I would try and show always three numbers. Like this is what's working. This is why I want to double down it. And this is where the gap is. And so that's why I want to hire into this, like into this particular role or this particular division of the team. And then it's just been a case of growing very organically in that way. Um, and obviously the team has, has grown massively from the three people we were when I started now to the 39 people. But in terms of the things that I'm looking for, it's actually become a lot easier for us now at Cognizm. Now we are fully in this demand gen mindset um, because it does already in itself kind of eliminate quite a few people who don't understand or um, know what it means to really truly do demand gen in the way that we are at Cognizant. Um, and we have we spell that out very explicitly on our job specs and in the role descriptions. Um, and so in a way, it's almost like um, self-qualification on the job app, which means we get many fewer people come through. But those people that do come through and, and you'll see an example of this in the book. It's just one of the many amazing cover letters that we've had from the team that we've grown at Cognizant, which are these people who are fully bought into what we're trying to do and build at Cognizant. Um, and so already share that mindset because that's a massive barrier number one I think when you're trying to do things differently and then number two is I look for people who have the traits which I call like I've talked about them being the DNA of me but also the DNA of the team so it's like operational by default action biased they're not ideas people they know how to take an idea and they know how to execute the idea more importantly than just providing an idea um, and we make very practical case studies within the hiring process to, in order to test those things as well. Um, and I also always test for how action biased they may be. And I dig into that through their previous roles and like want very practical examples of that as well. Um, so, yeah, on a high level, that's kind of that's kind of the, the answer. And then within the book, there's some very much more specific things when it comes to like the content roles, the demand gen roles, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I think that that's gold. That, that's just pure gold right there. Um, so always be hiring, you know th- that is something that I think people can take away because uh, you don't want to be in a position where you're scrambling. Uh, so when you are always talking to people, you have somewhat of a talent pipeline uh, ready to go. Um, that is huge. And then uh, the other thing you said that struck me was you don't get as many job applicants, but the ones you get are very high quality., hmm, that sounds familiar. It kind, of, it kind of sounds like uh, the way you guys do demand gen as well. So I love to see the alignment of the way you guys hire uh, similar to the way you operate marketing. That's, that's super cool. Um, there's this, there's this part in the book also about unicorn marketers and how companies can attract them. What, what can Cognizum, uh share about the way you guys go about trying to attract unicorn talent other than the great things you're already doing, such as uh, putting this demand gen framework out there You've been very open about sharing the journey from lead gen to demand gen. And I'm sure that does, you know, attract some really great talent. But any other tips on that?
0: Yeah, I think number one thing I would say is like the building in public thing is, is great because like people already feel they know you somewhat. Um, and that definitely gives you an advantage in terms of attracting that talent for sure. So that's been a massive unlock for us. Um, the other things I'd say is just just from a values and cultures perspective. So um we have this thing like we just like at Cognizant, we try and keep it as flat as possible from a hierarchical perspective, especially within the marketing organization. I'm a big believer in that. Um, I I, th- I want everyone to innovate and know everyone's ideas are as valuable as anyone else's. Um, and there's a very transparent kind of career path and progression as well. And so people are very, like, very clear on what that looks like because those are all things that I had frustrations with when I was in my career. And I've tried to make sure unblocked for others going through that cognizant. Um, so I guess, yeah, just implementing those things into the team and into the values and the culture and how we operate, I think has been really important for attracting people who feel like this is the kind of place that I can go and excel um, and really build a career. And they know that we're also at the cutting edge of like what it is to do marketing we're, we're building the playbook, we're not waiting for it to be built. Um, and again, I think that really does appeal to, to those unicorns.
1: Yeah, I love that. Uh, You know, being a trailblazer, that's certainly one of the best ways building in public. Uh, Creating the playbook, not sitting around waiting for someone else to do it, and then going to copy. Right, Those are definitely the the kinds of things that would attract uh, unicorn talent. And I think that is a great segment into the next part, which is uh, really the whole building in public thing. So you guys have been very good about um, the whole transitioning away from lead gen to demand gen, sharing the bumps along the way, the wins, the the losses as well. Um, so what was Cognizant like before? Like basically, what let's get into the before and after. Before, yeah. <laughs> before, what were you guys doing, and what was happening, and what was the outcome, and then what what made you kind of say, all right, we got to change something, and then once you changed it, how did you notice things kind of, you know, improving?
0: Yeah. Like I talk about this again in the diary. So if you are running a lead gen play, I think the diary is still great for you because there's a lot in there about how we ran lead gen really, really well. Like I think I would challenge others. Like I would say we were probably doing lead gen the best you could probably do it. And I say that in the way that what we were focused on was still quality content. So even though we were gating these eBooks and resources, the emphasis was on making sure that they were incredibly valuable, so that they were worth people giving up their contact details for, and that ultimately they would have a good experience post that gate, as well. Um, and yeah, we just managed to find predictability, and that was my—that was really what I was hired in to do. There was no predictability in marketing at all at this point, and so I was meant—I was tasked with building this predictable marketing model where we could deliver consistently, like over fifty percent of the revenue every month. And a big part of that was the content engine, and that was. All of these content mqls which then went to sales and we had what we called marketing development reps who were specialized in dealing with these content downloads and who held very specific targets on conversion rates from content download to sales qualified opportunity um their destinies were tied really closely with marketing so we would sign up to um a target of qualified MQLs that we would deliver into them, which would enable them to hit their quota. And then we would both succeed together basically as a conjoined entity. And that really worked for us in terms of incentivizing the right behaviors and us becoming as efficient as possible. And we were getting very good at generating these leads on LinkedIn. I mean, we were getting like a content download for sort of $10, $9, um, breaking by LinkedIn standards or what they said to us anyway, all of their records. and so, yeah, we, we got into this really predictable place with it. We knew that we would convert an MQL from, well, content lead into a sales qualified opportunity at a rate of 15%. Um, and then from there, we knew exactly what that would fall out into in terms of revenue. We knew what it cost us based on like a $10 cost per lead. And so finance loved it. Sales kind of loved it too, because it was a simple model that we could build on. And it was like super predictable. So I guess like mm. why break something that wasn't broken
1: yeah now were you guys calling as well as email okay
0: 100 percent. the first wow. step is always a call always a call wow we would build the cadences for the sale the mdrs so the marketing development rats who are dealing with the content leads um but we were very cool heavy cadences the emails were built by us and then we also have what we call like a content directory which they could it was like interactive, they could click on so they could get an overview of what content they were sort of pitching on the back of. Cause I found that that was a real issue a lot of the time was that sales had no idea what this ebook was or, you know, and they would just call up and start, you know, going off on a complete tangent. So that those were two unlocks as well, having this content directory and then having a really cool, heavy focus cadence um, were big things that definitely worked and helped us.
1: Yeah. How many MQLs would you guys get on a monthly basis? Uh,
0: Yeah, thousands. So we would have like three MDRs, for example, in the seat in the UK. And we worked on the basis of they would we would deliver them like 500 MQLs a month, essentially. So um, and then if we got to a point where we were delivering more than that, then we would hire a new MDR. So it was like we had a capacity model very clearly like. Yeah, stre- like sketched out. We knew exactly what number of leads each MDR could handle, what that conversion rate would look like, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it was incredibly predictable. Mm. I mean, yeah, we knew what we were going to get every month. Um, wow. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess why change it? It's yeah, been-
1: yeah. That's the thing. Sales loves it, finance loves it. I mean, even uh, if I were to pitch that scenario to any, maybe not any, but most CFOs today, they'd be salivating they'd say, oh my God, that is the dream state. That's the, that's the, you know, the home run we're looking for. So then I'm very curious to know what decided to make you say, all right, well, we need to change everything. Uh, what was that like?
0: So um, it started with like eye-watering targets, which I'm sure every every CMO's um, yeah, role, often the challenges start there when you get from finance and um, yeah, from your CEO, CEO, the new targets for the year and um it was like i looked at it and i broke it down i was like okay based on our current model what does this fall out like in terms of like the cost per lead but then also the mdr resource the mdr time etc cetera, etc cetera, um for us to achieve these goals and i split at that point i started splitting the funnel i was like okay so these are our declared intent leads and this is what's required in comparison to what's required on our um mql content leads and it was really really clear to me that from a scaling pers- perspective and in terms of enabling Cac to LTV to be as optimal as possible because that was also a clear target not only do we need to hit the goals but we needed to be very efficient that actually we were we got very good at this lead gen model and it was producing predictable revenue but it was definitely not optimized and by that I mean in comparison to the declared intent funnel it was leaky like the conversion rates were so much less so we're talking about we needed like um 25 declared intent leads for one deal on um the inbound model side whereas it was like 400 um mql leads for one deal on the on the content side something like that but like huge comparison like and it just made me think there must be a better way um and so that was when i started to think about this whole Chris Walker, demand gen world of things. Um, And I asked if I could just have like a bit of a testing budget, basically, just 5K a month, which for us at Cognizant wasn't a huge proportion of our overall spend, but I know that might be a lot for others, so I think it needs to be in proportion to what your current spend levels are. Um, And I just started to like play around with ungating some of our most popular, most successful pieces of content and seeing if I saw an uplift in declared intent inbounds in line with that increased spend on the ungated demand gen side of things. And we did that for three months and we saw a clear 47% uplift. And so then at that point I was like, okay, there's something here. And I realized that the content revenue gap, I could definitely close it just with that 47% uplift, like because of the conversion rates we were getting on declared intent versus content. Um. And so I, yeah, so I just saw this as an opportunity to be more efficient um, and to protect us from scale, like how we could scale going forward as well. Um, And I also wanted to free the team from living in Zapier hell um, and all of the like operational complexity that comes with dealing with like 400 plus forms and however many lead gen forms on LinkedIn and Zaps that go along with it. And it was just becoming messy and like. Just time suckingly dull as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that, that Zapier hell, I think most most of us have been there, and it's it's certainly not fun. Uh, so I'm certainly uh, sure that your team was happy to escape that. Um, and this this is super fascinating. I want to know about the must dos because I'm sure people watching this right now they're hearing, yep, that's that, that's where I'm at. Yep, that's what my CFO wants me to do. Yep, that's what my finance team wants. Yep. Uh, but uh, if, if there's any marketing leaders out there right now that's saying to themselves in their head, I've got to figure out a way to make this switch. Hmm. What, what would you say are the must-dos? How, yeah. how do you go about putting together maybe a checklist that says, all right, here's what I've got to you know, put together before I start pushing this thing and seeing how I can get buy-in?
0: So I think it's, this is a great question. And the good news is there are things that you can do right away which actually don't involve changing from the MQL model. So that's why I break it down in two parts. The first are the things you can do without changing the model. And the second are the things you do when you actually do need to start changing the model. So let's start with the stuff that you can do today. You don't need to alter your model in any way. Um, so first of all, for us, was utilizing subject matter experts in our content. So really leveling up our content. Um, once, you, If you're starting to think about the idea of content consumption and engagement being the new measure of success, and the quality of that content becomes so much more important, um, and so that that was a really clear way for us to level our content above others, and so that was something we started to do straight away. And you don't need to do any change to anything else at that point. And then I would also say, optimizing the content that you do create for the channels that you're distributing it on. So what I mean by that is, um, don't like stop with any of the promotional kind of content. Um, stuff that you're doing like if your company LinkedIn page is full of you promoting webinars promoting I don't know like anything promotional around the organization that's promotional first versus value-led stop that and actually like redesign the strategy go with value-led only and start to see if that can build traction in itself like changing your company organic LinkedIn page strategy is something you could do tomorrow and you don't really need um, any massive changes in order to do that and you can start to see some big impacts as well. The next thing I'd say is like, this is a great thing to do to get yourself ready for this new way of working, but upping your game when it comes to like product and bottom of funnel content. So what I mean by that are ways in which you can showcase what it is that your product does and how it helps your audience that aren't just, um, you know, your classic case study video or static image ad click to landing page type things. Get like creative. So we, have done things like interactive product demos using the Vatic. Um, we've done things like case study walkthroughs using the customer success org so that we can really scale those and we're not blocked by um, requirements for customer sign off. Um, we've done things called like wow moments videos which are just compilations of like the best moments and demos where people start like the aha moments, I guess. Um, and you can get really creative with these types of ways that you can show your product value I guess beyond just what you typically would see so I think just starting to really focus on that and then thinking about building a media machine and subscription channels so these are this doesn't necessarily require you to spend money it doesn't require any change to the MQL model but you know make think about the channels that make most sense for you and your business so for us it's podcast newsletter and YouTube Um, and create strategies and plans around those and how you're going to build them into like a media machine and and a sort of subscription um, channels. And then finally changing the way that you think about your blog. So the blog should not be a place where content goes to die and is shared once on LinkedIn organic on your company page. It should become like the hub of searchable content for your media machine that you're building And that content should be subject matter led, it should be timely, journalistic, and it should be written by experts, um, people who are like looking for their trends and sort of things that are happening in dark social, et cetera. So that's a big shift that you can make as well. And if you do all of those things, then you're already a really good way down the path to shifting your approach and you haven't had to actually change the MQL model.
1: Yeah, that's that's genius. Um, And like you said, you don't need a lot of money to do that. You don't need to change the model. It's, it's actually best practices that you should be doing today as a marketer. So even in sales, you're seeing this, the transition away from promotional to value-led, uh, making sure the blog is somewhere where people actually get value instead of, like you said, content goes somewhere to be buried. Uh, the subscription model stuff is genius too. I think some companies are starting to catch on to this, but like, you know, you mentioned YouTube. Uh, I, I posted the other day about YouTube being just a, a graveyard. Uh, Most companies, you go to their YouTube channel, you see outdated product videos and not much else happening, but you guys have a very well put together channel, uh, the podcast, the newsletter, right? So you're thinking about these leading indicators at the subscription level, uh, and that is fueling the whole media machine, which is phenomenal. So uh, I see a lot of great comments here. Someone just said they agree with this 100%. Um, I saw some other great comments uh, earlier about the 10% idea and people just really giving great feedback about the process uh, that Cognizant has taken to build a great marketing machine and the book itself. And so I think uh, at this point, uh, we're getting close to the end. And I think we can open up the floor uh, from uh, the audience. And you know, feel free to ask any questions or you know, leave any comments you want, and uh, we can go about addressing them right now.
0: I could also quickly, before we take questions, talk about that sort of part two of the shift of where, what you have to do, or what I did anyway when I moved from MQL to Demand Gen, and like just really quickly cover that, and then we could. Go and
1: see yeah, let, let let's do it. Let's close close the loop on the uh, lead gen to demand gen.
0: So after I guess after you've done all those things that you don't means you don't have to touch the model, then it becomes like the slightly more tricky bit, which is things are gonna have to change. Um, and so how can you do that incrementally? And I definitely recommend it's incremental. Um, you don't go cold turkey on this. Um, and yeah, what, what does that look like? So I talked about that CMO testing budget and I would recommend that if you are gonna go down this route, you just take a small percentage of your budget, maybe 10% of whatever your current monthly spend is. And um, you start playing around with the demand gen piece through paid um, promotion and ungating of the content. And you run that for sort of whatever three times your average sales cycle looks like, and just just start looking to see if you can start to see an increase. And this is at this point, all you're looking for um, is an increase in in the high intent demo requests you get through your website alongside that increased spend in the ungated play. So it's a very direct correlation and it's nothing more complex than that. And you can still keep your MQL model going. You're just taking a tiny bit of budget to start um, incrementally testing this piece. The next thing I would say is start reporting, split the funnel reporting. So you need to be able to say, and you should be reporting this, whether it's asked for or not, in all um, exec kind of reporting end of month, quarterly calls, the difference between your declared intent funnel and your content MQL funnel. And just by showing that data and showing the difference in the conversion rates and the difference in cost, the difference in CAC to LTV of both, you're gonna to start to sow seeds um, in the minds of the XX and other people within the organization that there probably is like a better way. So I would just continually be reporting on that, um, whether it's asked of you or not. And then what I would be doing is actually splitting our MQL, my MQL campaigns um, into like top performers and ones that are outperforming the benchmark, ones that are performing at the benchmark and then low performers. And what I'd be doing is I'd be shifting the budget completely into the top performing campaigns. And that would free up some money, a considerable amount of money. That means you can actually shift into that demand gen play that you've already started experimenting with, but without impacting the number of leads that you're going to generate, because you're going to be putting more into the top performing campaigns. And so you'll be able to bridge that lead gap by switching off those underperforming ones and over optimizing on the overperforming ones. And that frees you up to have a bit of budget, a bit more budget to push into the demand gen piece. So again, you're not asking for anything net new um, and it just gives you a bit more money to play with. And then once you've done all of these things, that is the time when hopefully you'll be able to say, look, I've been showing you this reporting now for the last kind of three months in terms of the inefficiencies that are happening in this content MQL world. Um, And at the same time, I've been experimenting within my budget constraints And I've been able to, and I can show you that this experimental spend is delivering us X increase in these declared intent inbounds, which, by the way, are converting at a much higher rate. They're staying with us for longer. And they're probably the ACV is higher as well. So overall, much better for the business. And then at that point, it's like, what is this content MQL gap that you're going to need to cover? Um, You need to be very aware of what that looks like. And then it's a case of like owning that and saying, you know, at this point, I feel very comfortable that if you were to just let me go nearly full blown demand gen, I can cover that revenue gap very happily through this declared intent funnel, which I'm sure will continue to increase through running this demand gen play. Um, And I think at that point, you've covered all the bases you can and like you've done the most that you can do to put the best business case forward. To do it incrementally to show the impact, um, and then it's kind of down to the execs to to buy into it, really.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're you're basically serving it up to them on a silver platter, and hoping they just say, "All right, well, yeah, this makes sense. I I, I see what's going on here. Let's just let's just shift it." Um, and then there's some comments here that really stand out. One says that, um, and I I really agree with this. Most marketing content lacks depth to encourage a reframing of the prospect's current status quo. A lot of focus is on repeating the message, but it feels like we're trying to shove our products and solutions too early, too soon, down people's throats. And I think what you've described here is uh, basically the uh, counter to that, which is instead of promotional value-led all the way and all the steps you basically have done to show the data to back up that, um, when you are leading with value and you do have this media machine and you do have the always-on demand engine running, uh, eventually you'll be able to get that buy-in. So pretty, pretty sweet. Uh, this has been an awesome uh, summary of the book. Um, I haven't gone through it, you know, page by page yet. I flipped through and I said, "Man, I can't wait till like I get some free time to actually go through and read this thing and digest all of this myself." Because there are, I think, I don't know how many entries in here, Alice, over two hundred.
0: I know this because I had to audio record them all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, by the way, there is an audiobook version available. Uh, there's a, a physical book version available on Amazon. Um, there's also a free version on the Cognizant website. And there's links in the comments to all these materials. So um, if you're interested in getting the physical book on Amazon, you can go and do that. Uh, if you want the audiobook, you'll be able to get that as well. Uh, And then the free version on the website, if you just want a quick little teaser, you can get that as well. So um, yeah, I guess we'll open up the floor for some questions at this point. How do you ensure you are delivering value in your content aligned to your personas and not just product features, uh, a trap that most SaaS businesses uh, fall into? This is a great one. Alice, what do you say?
0: So we actually bucket our content into four buckets, which I think really helps when thinking this through. So we have a thought leadership bucket, which is content that is um basically, it's content that would be valuable to our personas, regardless of anything that congressman does. So it's like, if I if I was talking about the latest trends of B2B marketing, it might have absolutely no bearing on anything that cognizant does or serves um, to that persona. But that is what we call stuff that was born into our thought leadership category. And then we have our content bucket. And that's things that are There is like a dotted line back to what Cognizant does. But again, it's still like mostly just really delivering value to our personas. So that whole idea of the shift from lead gen to demand gen, that whole piece is all very like fully content bucket for us. Um, Like we enable that for marketers because we can give the contact data for the SDR teams to use rather than needing to get it through forms and lead gen. But most of that conversation is just really interesting to our personas, whether they use Cognizant or not. And then we have a product bucket, which is the stuff I've been speaking about, which is that real bottom of funnel, um, diverse content formats that showcase like what it is that your product does and enables for your personas. And then our social proof bucket, which it does is actually what it says in the Tim. But by dividing everything into the four buckets it, and we continually have like, I guess, set parameters around how much needs to exist in each of those four buckets for the personas, how it needs to be performing on paid social, et cetera, et cetera. It means that we're continually creating new content within each of them. And it means that we're staying diverse and we're keep making sure that we're covering all of the bases, basically.
1: Nice, nice. Um, so we do actually have another question. This this one is fascinating. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to hear what you're gonna say about this one, Alice, but actually, I don't even know what I would say, but yeah. the, the, the question is <laughs> in the demand gen first approach, what type of content could you actually gate like is there is there something out there I maybe yeah. the, maybe this book giveaway is an example but you got to pay to get it uh you got to buy it which you know it's a book but um is there any type of content that's worth gating at all
0: for me no which is it's a bit of a miracle that i'm saying this now i mean chris walker see me now gosh Um, I would say uh, no because ultimately all you're doing when you gate something is you're creating friction and you're making it less likely that someone's going to consume and engage with that content and what has been proven time and time and again is the value is in the consumption and the engagement with the content so I don't see any world where gating something is more valuable than actually having it consumed
1: yeah and You know, um, I wanted to uh, also follow up on that with something. Is it possible that the people who download uh, content, the ones that actually, because here's the the pushback. I actually saw a post on this on LinkedIn from somebody who leads marketing at a software company. The post was something to the effect of, well, there's all this talk out there about, you know, going from lead gen to demand gen and ungating and all this stuff. But we just did the opposite. We just we just ran a couple of months where we started gating content, and the results were amazing. We got you know uh, this this kind of uh, you know flow from download to SQL to opportunity, and it goes against what everyone is saying. It it still works, and 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 people were like, wow, yeah, wow, yeah. The people who are still on the you know let's gate content trained they were they are really you know happy to see someone going against the grain with the counter is it possible my 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 counter to that is is it possible that those people were already in market that I, they, I
0: would, yeah, I would I, say I, yes I would say yes and I would say they'd still see those results albeit with a time lag if that content was ungated. Exactly, like,
1: exactly I just wonder
0: if they've done it the ungating in the right way in the past if if there's a lot, I think it's so easy, right, to say just on gate. And I yeah. think that you can broad brush that. And I think the key is in the way in which you do that, the way in which you execute and all the bits that go alongside it. And there is so much, like, and we're still learning every day. Um, and therefore, I think some people fail before they get going. And so they may still think that lead Gen is the right path because it's, you know, it's well trodden, there is a playbook, it's kind of easy to implement, and, and everyone gets it. So maybe if you can't execute demand gen well, maybe, yeah, you should do lead gen. Maybe yeah. that's the answer.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, have you heard the story of the pizzeria marketer? No. Ah, oh, this is great. I think it's a great way to close this point out. And then there's one more question. Um, so the pizzeria marketer uh, story came from Rand Fishkin. And he said there was a pizzeria that was struggling to get sales. And so the pizzeria hired three field marketers and um, it gave the field marketers uh, unique identifying flyers and that uh, the job of the field marketers was to go out and hand these flyers to people in the streets to get them to go to the pizzeria. And uh, so one, one field marketer went that way. The other field marketer went that way. And then there was one field marketer that said, hmm, how do I maximize my commissions? How do I maximize my attribution to to the to the efforts that I'm doing? I know. I'll hide behind this little alleyway. And then the, the people that are on their way to the pizzeria or right on the same street, I'll just hand them the flyer as they're already going in to get the credit. Nice. And, 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 and you know, it, there, was, there was this attribution like, wow, this, this one field marketer is so good. He or she is hustling so much more than the other or their technique and approach is so much better than the others. But actually, those people were just going to go buy anyway. And, and that is, a, I think, a great kind of analogy into the, yeah, you know, the people that you gate content that end up converting, it's likely they already saw your brand. It's likely they were already in market. It's likely they were already familiar with the things you're doing. And that content piece itself is not the thing that took them from being out of market to suddenly in market. Yeah, It just doesn't work that way.
0: And back to the scaling point like how do you get more of those out of market people aware and interested it's definitely not through gating so ultimately you might hit a scale issue there too
1: yeah exactly so there's one other question here um <clears throat> it says outside of the sas metrics that you talked about um, what does your marketing precision scorecard or reporting dashboard look like so in terms of inbound strategy what are the top metrics that you're constantly scrutinizing? And it sounds like they want to know more about leading indicators here.
0: Yeah, so um, I guess things that I really, really care about are, it's it, a lot of it comes back to engagement. So first of all, I guess my master dashboard is number of declared intent inbounds, that it's the num- amount of pipeline that they're generating and the amount of revenue and the conversion rate between each of those stages. And then also the response time to our declared intent inbounds. That's like from a very like, basic level I go and refresh that like probably every hour and check there's no red flags on that dashboard or conversion rate issues that we're seeing in the funnel but in terms of leading indicators the things that I'm looking for or that I set the team so one thing is about the amount of our I guess what I would call our perfect ideal customer persona then the amount the percentage of ideal customer persona that sits within our value loops that's a really big one that we're focused on at the moment Now, what I mean by value loop is a part of the media engine where someone will sign up for like one of our regular live events, for example, and they get consistent value added time and time again without us having to do anything. It becomes part of the process. They're just, they enter once and then the value continues to be delivered. If you sign up to a newsletter, that's another example of that. You subscribe to the YouTube channel, that's another example of that. So they're laser, laser focused on what percentage of our perfect ideal customer persona are sitting in our value loops and how are we increasing that percentage month over month. Um, and that's really important for me because that shows to me that the media machine is working and it is providing the value that it should be. And also that those people are coming back like and engaging again and again, because I know that those are the things that will ultimately lead to the declared intent demand further down the line. And then other things that we look at are, so, um, we have a laser focus on the website journey. So, um, when the demand general for example they'll look at um if they've been running specific so the way that we go about our content production is we use the easy mode framework from todd and Abade, um and we'll have like four point of views running and we'll be looking and to see which point of views are having the most traction and engagement based on the time on page the assisted conversions those pages are generating um the like the, the whole website journeys that they're starting. Maybe if it's not an assisted conversion, are they still starting website journeys and awareness for us? And then we look at everything on the paid side as well, in terms of depending on what the campaign objective is, how well it's performing against um, like the engagement benchmarks that we have. And there's a lot that goes into that. I mean, that I could do a whole hour just on what the paid side looks like, um, because there's, there's a lot. Um, that we do there to help us determine if campaigns are underperforming, performing as they should be, and what channels are really generating that revenue. Because a lot of it becomes de-anonymized, as you know, when you start to ungate things.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, th- this is a phenomenal breakdown. Uh, I-, I I love everything you guys are doing. You guys are definitely trailblazing and leading the way, creating the playbook, not just waiting for someone else to create it and copy. So uh, I definitely tip my hat to Cognizm. Congrats again, uh, Alice, on this amazing journey. I think this is a milestone moment, not just for you, but for Cognizm and really for, I I think, all first time aspiring CMOs. There is now something out there that um, you can refer to. And there was some stuff out there before, but I think this is maybe one of the best uh, compilations out there. So go and get the first time uh, Diary of a CMO and... uh, I guess that's the end of the questions and that looks like we're wrapping up the end of the session here. So uh, just to recap, guys, you can get the book in the comments. There's a link to the Amazon book, uh, the audio book and the free version as well. Uh, Alice, any you know closing remarks, anything else we can uh, throw in there?
0: No, I just want to say thanks so much to everyone for the support so far. And I really hope it's a valuable resource for everyone. And yeah, thank you.
1: All right. Awesome. Well, well thanks, Alice. Uh, thanks again to the Cognizant team for inviting me to uh, do this interview with you. And uh, yeah, happy marketing. We'll see you guys online.